Hello, welcome to the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. This is the show for anyone who's struggled with the superficiality and short half-life of what passes for education. I'm Mike Gray, and I'm transitioning from nearly 45 years as a professor in higher education into this role of podcast host. This show is not primarily about bemoaning the state of education. Instead, I'll offer a positive, practical vision of how your learning can become both deep and durable. This introductory episode of the Deep and Durable Learning podcast will lay out my vision for where we're going to be headed. Along the way today, you'll learn who I am and what particularly qualifies me to speak about how average people can learn deeply. I'll argue that it's only when learning is deep, that it's also durable, that it lasts. Intrigued? Stay tuned. Most learning is superficial and fades quickly. At least that's been my experience, and it's probably been yours too. I can remember back to many, many classroom settings, elementary school, junior high, high school, and into college, where I was exposed to lots of information and was somewhat successful in telling the teacher what the teacher had told me. But I have little to no memory of that learning experience. So this brings up the question, can we really say that we learned it if we don't know it any longer? Perhaps that resonates with you too. And this is the frustrating aspect of the educational enterprise, this exposure followed by forgetting on a massive scale. Because this is such a common experience, it's been the target of some humor over the years. The comedian Dave Barry in the 1990s, for instance, said this, you learn two kinds of things in college things you will need to know later in life, two hours, things you will not need to know later in life, 1,998 hours. The idea is you memorize these things, then write them down in little exam books, or these days you would take a multiple choice test, and then you forget them. There's an irony there that's uh, unmistakable because, at best, most of us, including college graduates who are listening, at best retain uh, an eclectic set of general facts and perhaps more detail about a few areas relating to, let's say, our job, plus perhaps a few hobbies that we have become interested in over the years. So my question to you is, how useful is that fact base to you? That by by whatever means you have retained it, 
you have this eclectic set of general facts and some more specifics about your job and hobbies, how useful is it to you? Well, Dave Barry, in his piece on college education, continues on as he reflects on the eclectic fact base that each one of us has. Barry says, it's very difficult to forget everything. For example, when I was in college, I had to memorize, and don't ask me why, the names of three metaphysical poets other than John Donne. I have managed to forget one of them, but I still remember that the other two were named Vaughn and Crashaw. Sometimes, when I'm trying to remember something important, like whether my wife told me to get tuna packed in oil or tuna packed in water, Vaughn and Crashaw just pop up in my mind right there in the supermarket. It's a terrible waste of brain cells. So that's what superficiality looks like. A terrible waste of brain cells, as Barry says. Why do I remember this stuff anyway? And why don't I remember other things that are arguably much more important that I know I've been exposed to at some point, but I just can't remember? Do I need to take a memory course? Do I need to use some kind of tricks to get my mind to remember more factual information? And I would answer, absolutely not. What you need as the antidote to the superficiality that you probably experienced, I certainly have, the antidote is deep learning. It's not accidental that this is called the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. But as soon as we say deep learning, it has a, an ominous ring to it. Perhaps to you it sounds elitist, that only a few people can accomplish deep learning. And you are listening to the podcast, so you'll be one of the few who knows how to accomplish this Herculean task. Or perhaps it sounds to you like uh, something only an egghead would be interested in, a nerd, uh, somebody who's not quite balanced. But again, think of what we're talking about. Deep learning is the antidote to superficiality. Now, perhaps you've heard the term deep learning. But probably if you have in the last five years, it's been in an entirely different context. Uh, perhaps you're aware of the field called artificial intelligence. Deep learning in the context of artificial intelligence is teaching software to mimic the workings of the human brain in regard to the way the brain, the human brain, processes data for a variety of purposes that involve decision-making. That could be a, a driverless car detecting an object and deciding to uh, move to a different lane or to apply the brakes, um, to recognize a stoplight and uh, stop accordingly. 
So while that's an accomplishment, and maybe you are or are not looking forward to the day of cars moving down the road briskly without human drivers at the wheel, what the software is trying to accomplish there is really a mimicking of the way software designers perceive that the brain handles all these data inputs and makes a decision. And frankly, that's not very helpful to us because deep learning is mimicking on some level what we are already experiencing as owners of a human brain. So let me put it in the context in which we will use it in this and future podcasts. And I'll just put it this way. Deep learning in humans emphasizes a focus on understanding powerful ideas. Deep learning in humans is not about data processing. It's about working with a focus on trying to grapple with powerful ideas and emerging with understanding that is uh, powerful and empowering. Let me take a step back here. Since we've said deep learning and humans emphasizes an understanding of powerful ideas, there's a book published uh, in 1948 called Ideas Have Consequences. Now, perhaps you haven't read the book, which was republished in 1984, but perhaps you've heard that phrase because it has a meaning outsize beyond the scope of what that book was intended to convey. That book, according to the author, Richard Weaver, was written in a reaction to World War II, a reaction in particular to its immense destructiveness and to the strain that it placed on ethical principles. Think about that. In the context, 1948, of World War II having ended, there were some powerful ideas that people needed to come to grips with when the life of our troops was not on the line, when um, perhaps the survival of a particular country or system was not in question. And two of them that Weaver surfaces are the immense destruction that accompanied World War II and the strain it placed on ethical principles. In other words, um, all of the individual battles, the decisions that were made, the weapons that were deployed. Um, in the aftermath, it was prudent to try and reflect on the ideas that propelled us into World War II and the ideas that um, structured the, uh, the battles that we fought or the strategic retreats that we engaged in. 
Uh, an example of this, uh, the, a powerful idea that's still debated today, and people come down on different sides of it, is the immense destructiveness of the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Japan. And whether, to put that in the context of the strain it placed on ethical principles, whether it was in fact justified, the United States and the Allies in general uh, had characterized their approach to warfare as one that engaged troops in some kind of battlefield conflict and tried to minimize civilian casualties. And yet here we have in these two um, nuclear bombs that were dropped, uh, destruction on a massive scale that basically obliterated two cities and virtually all of their inhabitants, uh, civilian and soldiers alike. And so we might well ask the question whether that bombing was justifiable. Uh, it's not my point here to move through uh, a consideration of this further. But what I am saying is that when you focus on ideas, uh, ideas go somewhere. Or again, to use Weaver's title, ideas have consequences. So in contrast to superficial learning, if facts are often inert, that is, okay, so you've stated a fact, so maybe that's interesting. Maybe it entertains somebody at a party. Maybe they wonder why you remember facts like that. Facts are often inert and uh, are kind of uh, a display of the productivity of my memory, but they don't go anywhere. On the other hand, ideas have consequences. Indeed, ideas may well be, if we can use the opposite of inert, may well be combustible. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why there are World War II buffs who argue about these things all the time, who argue about strategies in particular battles, who argue about the morality or immorality of choices. There's a reason why there are environmentalists or why there are political camps in our day. The reason at the base is that people are passionate about ideas, and ideas have consequences. And ideas are multifaceted, which is why investigating an idea with passion to try and understand it fully does not automatically come out at a place of agreement among partisans who are perhaps passionate about some of the same ideas. So what we could say then is uh, if we're concentrating on a deep learning level, on an understanding of powerful ideas, it's probably evident to you that people have no problem remembering and applying relentlessly ideas that they feel passionate about. In other words, deep learning leads to 
durability. And that's really the thrust of this podcast as we move forward. How do we achieve deep learning with the fruit being the durability, the longevity of our learning, the applicability of our learning, indeed the consequences of the ideas that we work to try and master. That's just a a little sense of where we're heading in this podcast. Let me say a word about myself. I'm Mike Gray, as I introduced this podcast, I told you I have been a full-time teaching professor in cell biology for nearly 45 years. In fact, this summer I'm uh, transitioning is the word I like rather than the word retiring from that nearly 45-year career as a full-time teaching professor into the role of podcast host and uh, blogger. Probably in your mind, there's something about being in higher education for 45 years that means I might have something to say about teaching, but perhaps it's as likely that you might view me as part of the establishment, as somebody who was embedded for that long in higher education, Uh, perhaps the Dave Barry parody of college education comes to mind, and maybe uh, I'm enmeshed in that parody view of higher education. I do confess that I have immensely enjoyed my teaching career, and uh, I believe my students have not only enjoyed but profited from my teaching. Um, They've told me so and many uh, personal notes and communications, uh, even as recently as a a meeting that I had yesterday with a a graduate who's running for political office in another state. So I have found enjoyment there, but uh, in the early years, uh, after the glow of being a a first-time teacher wore off, I have to confess, I felt a good deal of frustration. And the reason was that I felt that even my own teaching, motivated as I felt it was, was not accomplishing what I had hoped to accomplish in the classroom. That although my students appeared to enjoy my teaching, a few years after taking one of my courses, they retained precious little of the ideas that I thought I was communicating. And that led to um, a good deal of deliberation and reflection, um, led me to the teaching and learning literature, led me to discussions with colleagues, to participation in uh, professional development programs, to the point where uh, my teaching is quite different than it was in those early years. And uh, I would say for the last 20-plus years of that stretch of nearly 45 years, uh, my desire to change teaching has led me to a double life. 
That is, my passion for teaching has uh, propelled me to share what I felt was productive and what involved change to the status quo with colleagues. And I would just underscore here that I'm not talking about hot tips, that I'm not talking primarily about techniques, which education in general seems to generate in a never-decreasing stream that sees new techniques or revival of old techniques almost every year. This is not a technique-driven approach to learning. My passion for teaching uh, led me to try and understand and cooperate with the way the brain is designed to learn. That may sound obvious, but uh, much of teaching and learning does not take into account what we have learned about how the brain learns. When I say that um, my passion has led kind of to a double life, that involves um, programs, summer programs that I have designed. Uh, these include a long-running program, now 17 years, uh, called the Summer Institute in Teaching Science, in which my science colleagues at my university have been involved and have profited. But there was also a stretch when I didn't overstretch myself, when uh, I created other another program involving non-science disciplines and uh, for a period of five years led summer programs for uh, faculty, non-science faculty, in a variety of academic disciplines all over the map, uh, including music and humanities professors. So my ideas um, have been long in developing. They have been tested regularly in my classroom and other classrooms, and I believe form uh, a strong basis for this podcast and future engagement in thinking through the issues of deep and durable learning. This inaugural season of my podcast is going to use a series of five episodes to go after the concept of information as actually an enabler of superficiality. Again, the opposite of deep and durable learning is superficial and transitory learning. And the information concept is, in my view, a major enabler of superficiality. Uh, we would all acknowledge we live in the information age, but what I'm saying is information has a surprising dark side that I will unpack in these season episodes, this first season. The second enabler of superficiality is the reality that education on all levels is generally designed around the teacher and not the learner. That's uh, interesting and troubling, actually. I mean, 
teachers cannot do the learning for the student. We, on some level, recognize that. But optimizing this as techniques that teachers use to construct curriculum, techniques that teachers use to construct class sessions, homeworks, activities, etc., has generally, for the history of professional education, been designed around uh, making this task doable for teachers and only tangentially considering the needs of learners. So the superficial is the enemy, and the solution to superficiality is a change of focus to powerful ideas, a change of practice from an emphasis on teaching to learning, and working with rather than against the way the brain is designed to learn. Join me for Episode 2 of the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast, where we'll explore the dark side of the information age. If you enjoyed this first episode, please subscribe to the podcast and like it, comment on it, and share it. If you want to contact me, Mike Gray, personally, please email me at podcast at deepandurable.com. That's an email address. Podcast at deepandurable.com. Thank you.